Hello, and welcome to Grand Final History. In this episode, we go back to 1916, the 20th year of the VFL, and the most unusual season in the competition's history, as the challenge of continuing a football league during a global conflict resulted in a season like no other. The war had started in 1914, and there was still no indication of when or how it would end. The horrific casualties created a never-ending demand for more soldiers. Billy Hughes, the Labor Prime Minister, wanted to introduce conscription, but had to overcome opposition from his own party. To resolve the impasse, he decided to conduct a plebiscite, a vote by the people that would give him the moral authority to introduce legislation enabling conscription for service outside of Australia. It would be a deeply divisive campaign during 1915. One key opponent was former Brunswick VFA footballer and future World War II Prime Minister John Curtin, who would ironically introduce conscription during World War II, albeit to help defend Australia against the Japanese. But that's a story for another time. The plebiscite, held in October after the football season, was lost, and Billy Hughes was expelled from the Labour Party for his support of conscription. He would then form a breakaway party and, combined with the former opposition, to continue as Prime Minister. Other impacts of the war included the introduction of six o'clock closing for pubs, which led to the notorious six o'clock swill, and was not repealed in Victoria until 1966. While pubs had to shut at six, private gentlemen's clubs could stay open. Debate about this anomaly led to the Wharf Workers' Union asking for a public apology from Reverend Henry Worrell, who said that he had seen men coming down the steps of clubs just as drunk, just as blasphemous, just as filthy as any wharf labourer. The Wharfies' Union took offence at this remark, as they thought they were as good as any other body of men, including the clergy. Maybe being sensitive about being called names, or given labels you disagree with, is not a new phenomenon. Adding to the misery, it was the wettest year on record for Melbourne, with almost double the average rainfall in the year. 1916 also saw the Easter Uprising in Ireland that would eventually lead to the division of Ireland into Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland, with all the issues that continue in that part of the world today. On, perhaps a lighter note, 1916 was also the year that some consumer-focused innovations were introduced that became a part of 20th century culture all around the world. Coca-Cola introduced the contour shape bottle, and, also in America, there was the introduction of the first self-service grocery store, where, rather than be served by staff across the counter, customers could pick up product off a shelf and carry them to the checkout. This type of shop would evolve into the supermarket we know today. Now, let's focus on the football. The 1915 season had been completed in full, despite a majority of clubs voting in July to shorten the season. Questions about holding any games at all for the season 1916 would start in January, when the South Australian League announced their decision to abandon the competition until the end of the war, adding more pressure onto the VFL. The league was preparing for the first year of the district scheme, which had finally been agreed to in 1915, after several attempts. The district scheme created suburban zones tying residents of that area to a specific club. This would stop new players being able to go to whichever club would pay the most. 
while current players would not be impacted, the aim was to control the costs related to the next generation of recruits. But would there be any competition to recruit for? In early February, Collingwood confirmed that their players would play as amateurs, and it was reported that Carlton, St Kilda and Melbourne would follow suit. Essendon resolved that the season should only proceed with all gate receipts and member subscriptions being pooled and paid to patriotic funds. The decision of the league at a meeting held in private on the first week of February was to continue with the full season, recommend, only a recommendation, no payment of players other than travelling expenses and lost income from their usual jobs, and 10% of net gate receipts, that is the profit, during the season, and 50% of finals profit to be given to patriotic funds. There were some who questioned that if there were no payer payments, why the clubs would need 90% of gate takings. A number of clubs were unhappy with this outcome. Essendon players met and said that they would only play if the competition was strictly amateur. Players paying their own expenses and all gate takings and membership revenue went to patriotic funds. At a special meeting of the VFL on the 19th of February, there was much animated discussion and many options were put, but none were agreed. On the vote for abandoning the season, again, a majority of clubs were in favour, but not the 75% majority required for such a decision. The five clubs in favour were Essendon, St Kilda, Melbourne, South Melbourne and Geelong. Those against abandoning the season were Carlton, Collingwood, Fitzroy and Richmond. Eventually, the meeting resolved that there be no payment to players, except for out-of-pocket expenses, and that each club hand over net profits to patriotic funds. Only Essendon and St Kilda opposed this resolution. The Essendon delegate indicated that this would not be acceptable to his players, and they would not play football this season. There was going to be many more developments before the season began. The league came under further pressure at the end of February when the VFA decided unanimously to abandon football. However, the VFA also claimed that players still belonged to them and they could not transfer to the VFL, even if the VFA was not playing. The next challenge was a letter sent to the VFL by the Melbourne Football Club on Monday the 28th of February, informing officials that Melbourne would not participate this year, despite the fixtures already being published. A special meeting was scheduled to assess the situation and to see if any other clubs would follow Melbourne's example. The early months of the year, that were usually the quiet period for the league, was now the time of its biggest challenge in 20 seasons. Even before the next meeting of VFL delegates, the newspapers were reporting that South Melbourne, St Kilda and Essendon would also not play this season. The league met on the 6th of March, Long speeches were made by various delegates. One revelation was that Geelong indicated that they were now willing to play for the season, meaning that four clubs, Melbourne, South Melbourne, St Kilda and Essendon, were asking permission to stand out for the season. That motion was lost. Fitzroy's delegate, Mr Arrowsmith, said that it would be a farce to go on with the season with only five clubs, and the matter should be referred back to the club's to decide what should be done. Thus the meeting ended, with confusion on what it all meant. One of the challenges in resolving this situation was the requirement for a 75% majority for these types of decisions. 
with four clubs in one camp and five in the other, neither side could gain the required 75%. While this was going on, there were many letters being published in the city's newspapers. The two arguments could be summarised as 1. A need to focus all efforts on the war, and hence cancelling football would remove a distraction. Supporters of continuing with the season pointed out that football provided some much-needed entertainment and a distraction from the troubles of the world at a low price for the working man, and it did not hinder recruitment. Collingwood's committee identified that 35% of those who had enlisted had played football in some form or another, and they were better soldiers for it. It was also pointed out that there were no calls to cancel the racing industry that was conducting events nearly every day of the week, and which was a far more expensive entertainment, nor was professional boxing being asked to stop their bouts. The district cricket season was also proceeding without question. Why was football being singled out? Prior to the league's AGM, there was an even bigger threat developing. Those clubs that wanted to continue playing were rumoured to be in discussions with Brunswick and North Melbourne from the VFA, looking to set up a new body with clubs committed to playing the season. This has echoes of the efforts to create a separate professional Victorian football competition in 1911, when many of the same clubs were exploring options to allow footballers to be professional, while clubs such as Melbourne and St Kilda opposed such moves. Having survived 19 seasons so far, would the league make it into a 20th season? Adding to the complexity was the news that Geelong had moved back into the group of clubs that would not play this year. The AGM was understandably a tense affair. While there was clearly ill feeling between the two camps, the new president of the league, Oliver Weems, seemed to have done a good job at keeping the delegates focused on coming up with a solution to the dilemma they found themselves in. After reaching stalemate, Mr Weems suggested that the four clubs in favour of playing should withdraw to another room and return with a proposal. After some time, the meeting reconvened, with Ern Copeland, the Collingwood Secretary, speaking on behalf of the four clubs, proposing that the district scheme be suspended for the season. The four clubs would play a season, with proceeds being donated to patriotic funds, and with the exact details in terms of the number of matches to be determined by the Match Arrangement Committee, and that the delegates of the other clubs remain and provide every support for the success of the league. This motion would be debated at the next meeting. The final resolution of the season's arrangements was that each club would play each other four times, two home games each, before a final series conducted as per the normal Argus scheme. The team that came last, or fourth, would be playing in the first semi-final against the team that came second, and so forth. The district scheme would also be implemented this season. The non-playing clubs did not want to give the competing teams a recruiting advantage while they stood down. This meant that only players from the northern suburbs would be eligible for the four competing VFL clubs. Juniors from south of the river would be barred from a VFL career until the war was over. The threat of the league's breakup had been averted. There would be a VFL season in 1916, but it would be unlike any before or since. Some of the historians reviewing this time have put the four competing clubs into a camp of predominantly working class and predominantly Catholic players, 
which was not as enthusiastic about the war as the five predominantly middle-class, predominantly Protestant clubs that were more strongly identified with king and empire. Certainly, it was the clubs like Collingwood that were making the point in more than one meeting that football was the cheap entertainment for the working man. The season started on the 6th of May, with Carlton hosting Fitzroy and Collingwood travelling to Punt Road to play Richmond. Fitzroy held on to beat a fast-finishing Carlton in front of a respectable 10,000 people, while Collingwood won another close game against Richmond with about 8,000 people watching. The teams would swap the following week, and the week after that, and the week after that, and the week after... yeah, you get the point. Fitzroy won their first two games, followed by a draw, but then lost to Carlton at home in round four. The Maroons' season then took a bad turn. It was not easy for any of the clubs to get a consistent team onto the ground. For example, 15 Fitzroy players had enlisted, and across the season they had 11 players make their debut. Richmond's season started slowly, but they reached a milestone in round seven on June 17 when they had their first win against Collingwood at Victoria Park. Collingwood nearly held on to their record, They did almost all the attacking in the last quarter, kicking five goals five to Richmond's two goals one, but the Yellow and Blacks held on to win a famous victory by one point. Round eight saw Collingwood's Dan Minogue play his last game for the club. He had enlisted and been given special permission to play while in the army training camp, but now he and many others were moving out. A band of soldiers had been cheering him on during the game, and they carried him shoulder high from the ground. Sadly, Collingwood lost that match against Carlton. As the weeks passed, the attendances dropped. Only 2,000 people watched the Round 9 game between Carlton and Richmond, the Blues having an easy win. The home and away season ended after 12 weeks. Carlton had been the strongest side all season, with only two losses. Collingwood was second with six wins, and Richmond could take some pleasure in making the finals for the first time by finishing third on the ladder with five wins. Fitzroy's year had been disappointing. After winning the first two games, they did not have another victory. Nine straight losses saw them finishing last on the ladder, collecting their first wooden spoon. But nine straight losses also saw them finishing fourth on the ladder, and they would be playing in the first semi-final against Collingwood. Carlton, with the all-important right of challenge for finishing on top of the ladder, would play Richmond in the second semi-final. Despite Melbourne being unwilling to play football during the season because it might distract from the war effort, the Melbourne Cricket Club was willing to rent out the MCG for the finals, although it was handing over its receipts to the patriotic funds. In a similar vein was the request at the previous league meeting by the non-playing clubs that proceeds from the finals be divided between all league clubs, even though they had spent the year on the sidelines. They insisted they were planning to hand the money over to the patriotic funds, but it seems they wanted the recognition that it was their donation to the patriotic funds rather than the money going directly from the league. The first semi-final was held on the 12th of August. The Friday Age preview thought that the Maroons would have their strongest team in for the season. Charles Norris, for example, was returning from disqualification for an incident in a May 27 game against Carlton, and Collingwood had some injuries to deal with. The Herald's Kikoro did call out the elephant in the room, with four teams playing in finals when only four teams had played in the shortened season. He said, but this is an unusual season. And, but for the courage of those four clubs, there would not have been a season, 
and so the matter stands. A small crowd of about 9,600 were at the game, the lowest crowd ever for a semi-final at the MCG. This was 5,000 less than the 1915 semi-final and about a quarter of the crowds that were seen before the war started, indicating that while some people wanted football to go on, the season was not attracting the numbers seen in more normal times. The first two quarters saw attractive football, and even though Fitzroy trailed by nine points at half-time, the Age Review thought that they had deserved the lead. Fitzroy's efforts at being competitive were all the more impressive given the run of bad form that they had shown in the lead-up to the finals. The third quarter must have surprised all the spectators, with only the Fitzroy barrackers smiling though. They kicked four goals to Collingwood's four points, to take a two-goal lead at the last break. The final quarter was a tight affair, with Collingwood making a comeback, then both teams were going goal for goal. The final result was a win for the Maroons by one goal. Fitzroy had lost more games than any other team, more games than the top two teams combined, but they were in the final. It was an unusual season. The second semi-final was between the top of the ladder Carlton and Richmond. Richmond making the finals for the first time since they joined the VFL in 1908. Between 1908 to 1915, they had played Carlton 16 times and lost every time. So far in 1916, they had played the Blues four times and lost every game. But this time was going to be different. This time they would get their first win. Spoiler alert, it's going to be some time before Richmond has their first win over Carlton. In his preview, Kikoro considered that only the most optimistic Richmond supporter expected to win. The Yellow and Blacks played the game in sadness and wearing black armbands. A week before the game, Bill Nolan, a ruckman that had played 30 games across 1914 and 15 before signing up to the army, had been killed in France. 11,600 spectators were at the MCG. A small improvement on the previous week, but still a very small crowd compared to semi-finals held in peacetime. It was a much closer game than many expected. Carlton had built up a three-goal lead at half-time, but a strong third quarter by Richmond meant that only a goal separated the teams at the last break. The last quarter was a desperate affair that deserved a bigger audience. It was goal for goal, and with five minutes remaining, Richmond were five points in front. Would this be the day they broke the Blues' hoodoo? But then Carlton's pressure began to tell, albeit inaccuracy was not helping. Forward pocket Athel Sharp had a shot, but it was just a point. Then centerman Rod McGregor kicked the ball in and hit the post. And Charlie Cannon's kick did not even make the distance. The Blues were doing all the attacking, but Richmond held on to a narrow lead as the clock ticked down. They were almost there. A long shot from Harry Horton fell short. Richmond supporters cheered and hoped for the victory. Blues barrackers groaned. But then a moment later, everything changed. Blues rover... Viv Valentine picked up the loose ball, snapped towards goal and brought up two flags. The Blues were in front. But the Richmond players did not lose hope. From the bounce, they cleared the ball into their forward line. There was a scramble and umpire elder Bluey's whistle. It was a free kick to Richmond's forward pocket George Bayliss. He was within an easy distance, on not much of an angle. A goal would put Richmond in front and surely give them the game. He took his shot. He missed, and the ball went through for a behind. 
The bell rang and Carlton had won again and would take on Fitzroy in the final. The final match was at the MCG on Saturday the 26th of August. If Carlton won, they'd be premiers. Fitzroy had to win this game and the rematch because the Blues had finished the season on top of the ladder and had the right to challenge. Like the previous week, there was a sombre note to the game. News had arrived that Gordon Chalice, who was considered one of the best afield in the 1915 Carlton Premiership team, had died in France. The Carlton players wore black armbands. Fitzroy had received a letter from Jack Cooper, who had played 135 games for the Maroons, captaining the team in 1912 and playing in their 1913 Premiership. He'd also won the best and fairest in 1911 and 14. He wrote from England, saying that he had received 10 letters from clubmates and was so keen to know the result of the Premiership that he asked for the results to be cabled to him. Sadly, Jack Cooper would be killed in 1917 on the eve of that season's grand final, a game that was being played by his Fitzroy teammates. The Blues were red-hot favourites, understandably, as they had only lost twice in the season, albeit one of those was against Fitzroy way back in the very first game of the season. But there is no such thing as a certainty in football. The Blues started the game better than their opponents, but then the Maroons responded well in the second quarter. The real problems for Carlton started with injuries to their key players. Athel Sharp, playing in the forward pocket, fell and dislocated his shoulder. He had to leave the ground. Then Ernie Jamison, playing at fullback for the Blues, broke his arm, leaving Carlton to play the game with 16 players. Although the Roy's ruckman, Chris Lethbridge, had a badly hurt leg and was reduced to hobbling around the ground, reducing their advantage. Fitzroy had worked their way to a two-point lead by three-quarter time. But rather than another close game like the two semi-finals, a four-goal-to-none final quarter gave Fitzroy victory and the scene was set for a grand final. The unexpected turn of events meant that Fitzroy was now seen as a serious contender. They were playing with form at the right end of the season and the Blues had some serious injury worries to deal with. The umpire for the grand final was Arthur Norden, following on from the grand final in 1915. The Carlton captain was the veteran Bill Dick. After leading his team to a premiership in 1914, he had missed much of the 1915 season and the grand final due to a suspension, but was back in charge this year. Fitzroy would be led by Wally Johnson. He had joined Fitzroy in 1907 and was a joint best and fairest in his first year. A member of the 1913 Premiership team, he was made captain in 1916. He was an attacking centre-half backman, using his pace to move the ball into the Maroons' forward line. The grand final attracted 21,000 people to the MCG, the smallest attendance for the grand final since 1900 when the game was played at the East Melbourne Cricket Ground, but the largest crowd at a game for 1916. Carlton had to replace injured players such as Athel Sharp and Ernie Jamison, so George Cole and Jimmy Morris came to the side for their first games of the season. Jimmy Morris had been selected for the Blues late in the 1914 season and played in that grand final, and then played all but two games in 1915, winning another premiership. But he was out of the team for all of 1916 until the grand final, so he ended up playing in three grand finals in his first 25 games but it was Fitzroy who created the biggest selection shock by coaxing Lau McLennan out of retirement for one more game. McLennan 
had ended his career in round three of the season owing to persistent back pain. But with star forward Jimmy Freak still injured and Chris Lethbridge unable to recover after injuring his leg, it was time for an innovative or possibly desperate idea. 1916 had in some ways been a monotonous affair with four clubs playing each other again and again and the public interest had died away after a time. But the finals had provided a series of close and interesting games with the chance of a major upset in the grand final. Unfortunately, it turned into a one-sided affair with the Blues outplayed across most of the game. Fitzroy had the wind in the first quarter and were playing faster football than their opponents. They had a three-goal advantage at quarter time, which could have been more if they'd kicked straight. The fast-paced Fitzroy team continued their dominance into the second quarter. The Blues' Alex Bongo Lang could have helped bridge the gap, but his shot at goal missed. And, if that name sounds familiar to you, it is the same Alex Lang that was suspended for five years after the 1910 final series for his part in a match-fixing affair. He had made his comeback in 1916, albeit slower and at a higher playing weight than his earlier career. The Blues had a small run in the last quarter, giving their supporters some cause for hope. They had kicked the first two goals of the quarter to get within 15 points. Alex Lang had another chance to get them closer, but his shot missed. Then the Maroons settled. The back line tightened up and two goals to Fitzroy took away any hope of a last-minute comeback. The final scores were Fitzroy, 12 goals, 13, 85, to Carlton, 8 goals, 8, 56. The Wooden Spooners had done what no club before them had done, win the Premiership from fourth. Carlton had only lost two games in the home and away season, but crucially, they lost two games in the finals. Fitzroy had denied Carlton's second attempt at three premierships in a row, and in doing so, claimed the top spot in terms of premierships won in the league's first 20 years. Six flags in 20 years would keep most supporters happy. There was no reporting of the celebrations held after the premiership win. In a time of war, I think these would have been more restrained than normal. In other football news, we should not forget the historic Pioneer Exhibition Game held in London in 1916 between two teams of Australian servicemen. The first exhibition game held overseas, with funds raised going to the French and British Red Cross. It was held at the Queen's Club in Kensington. Many of those playing were from the VFL, VFA, South Australian and Western Australian Football Leagues. A real collection of football talent. 3,000 people, or possibly 8,000 depending on your sources, were at the game, including the Prince of Wales, who later became King Edward VIII, and the former King Manuel II of Portugal. The Coventry Evening Telegraph reported on the game, saying, Speed and well-directed kicking counted for much, and in this respect the players showed great cleverness. Sadly, six of those playing the game would lose their lives in the coming months and years of the war. But it is clear from the reports of the game that the match was enjoyed by the players and spectators alike. A brief respite from the challenges they faced. Colour film of the game is now available on the AFL website. I'll put a link on the grandfinalhistory.com.au website or search for Pioneers Football London World War I on your favourite search engine and you should be able to find the link. On the home front... Far less honourable news was going to emerge about this unique season. One of the key points made by the VFL and club officials at the start of the season 
was that net profits would be donated to patriotic funds and the players would only receive minimal expenses. But by June 1917, after audits were conducted, it was clear that the expenses had been high and the donations low. A total of only £282 donated from a revenue of over £2,874, expenses consuming 90% of revenue. This would lead to a requirement that clubs claiming to raise funds for patriotic purposes have their books audited by the War Council, and also led to the resignation of VFL President Oliver Williams, who had supported the efforts of the clubs to play and been let down by those same clubs who did not follow through with the support of patriotic funds as promised. We'll learn more of this affair in the next episode. For now, we remember that Fitzroy were 1916's wooden spooners and premiers, an achievement that will never be repeated. And despite all the controversy about playing football in a time of war, despite only four clubs competing in the season, there is no asterisk on that premiership. When the Brisbane Lions, successors to the Fitzroy Maroons, count their premiership wins, 1916 is given the same recognition as all their other triumphs. So join me next time as we look at 1917, the 21st year of the VFL, when South Melbourne and Geelong return to the competition and the ongoing challenges of recruitment and conscription will continue to dominate discussion for supporters and players and officials. If you have enjoyed Grand Final History, please leave a review where you get your podcast from. The more goals we kick, the easier it is for others to find the podcast. If you have questions or you want to leave feedback, please email me at info at grandfinalhistory.com.au or check out the grandfinalhistory.com.au website or Facebook or Twitter for more Grand Final History. (laughs) 